0: Well, this morning we're going to uh, turn in our Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 8. And we made it to chapter 8 in our series on 1 Corinthians. And the section of Scripture that we're going to uh, get our mind around today is so important. We're discussing today areas that are not addressed in Scripture specifically. We know what the Bible says about lying and about killing, about cheating, about committing adultery. And there is a New Testament list of all kinds of things that that Paul and others would describe as works of the flesh. Those are black and white, but there are things in the Bible that the Bible does not address specifically. One commentator said this, they're called gray areas. Where in every year, in every society, and in every culture, and in every environment, there has to be a decision made that may only be for that time and for that place. Now, I want you to get your mind around that statement. This is John MacArthur. He says, where in every year, in every society, every culture, in every environment, there has to be a decision that may only be for that time and place. It's a gray area something the Bible doesn't talk about specifically. And this is a huge issue. What are Christians to do in, re- in regards to what's right and what's wrong? As I was studying in this and looking for uh, resources on 1 Corinthians chapter 8, I ran across a message from 1976. That was the year I was born. 38 years ago, John MacArthur was preaching out of this text, and he gave a list of things that he considered gray areas. I want to share these with you. These were the things that were on the, on the forefront of the church. Listen to this. Is it right to shop on Sundays? To go shopping on Sunday? Do you remember that? Does anyone remember those days? A few of you, okay. Should Christian women wear makeup? Should Christians go to the movies or watch movies all together? How about playing cards? That was an issue at that point. Is it right or wrong? Is it right or wrong to listen to rock music, to dance, to mix bathe? How many remember that term? Mix bathing. Girls and guys. Okay, we got one hand. All right. All right. Should Christians have a beer or wine or too much coffee? These were the things 38 years ago that John MacArthur in his church were addressing as gray areas where the Bible doesn't talk about rock and roll music or mixed bathing or playing cards specifically. For me, growing up, I grew up in a Christian family. You guys have heard my story before. For me, it was the rule in my house that we could not watch any movie that was rated higher than PG, In fact, the very first PG-13 movie I watched was after I was married. I was pretty obedient and followed my parents, their their wishes, but that was important to my family. Christian music was the only kind of music that we were allowed to listen to in our cars and at home. For our family, we weren't allowed to participate in Halloween. How many remember those days, right? It, It wasn't that far that long ago. For us, we didn't have a TV in our house till I was nine years old. And then once we did, were cartoons okay? Oh, no. <laughs> Not a chance, right? The Smurfs were off limits. Uh, you know, He-Man or She-Ra, I don't, I don't even know what they are. But I, we weren't allowed to watch these. We were allowed to watch one cartoon Muppet Babies. And so, you know, at 10 and 11 years old, 12 years old, on Saturday mornings, when Muppet Babies was on, we were allowed to watch, and that was it. And that was what our family, what at that time, that's what my parents said, hey, these are the rules for our house. So today, what are some gray areas that we have to face? Movies, instead of just movies, going to the movies, uh, I I'm almost afraid to to ask this but is there anyone here that's ever been to a motion picture film just raise your hand just real quick all right most of you have I know there's a few that haven't and that's okay but instead of just going to the movies right it's more about the ratings saying okay what how, what ratings are and ratings with video games how about smoking or marijuana for that matter, or the big stogie, which is kind of emerging in our culture again. I was studying this, and I'm like, okay, what about smoking? Did you know that some of the greatest preachers of all time smoked? Charles Spurgeon was asked once, he was, he was a big smoker, big cigars, he would smoke in the pulpit sometimes. <laughs> this is not, not exaggerated. Then someone said, well, how would you know if it, became an ex- it came to Excess. He says, if I start smoking two cigars at once, I've gone too far. That was, his, that was his comment. But today, social drinking is a huge issue. Modesty, how do we handle the internet? Google is not found in Scripture unless you read it backwards and get all the numbers right. Then, No, I'm just kidding, that's not true. But what do you do if the answers are not found in the Bible specifically? One that's emerged recently and there's a huge controversy uh, in the media even, in Christian circles, is abortion. People are saying, well, abortion is not specifically in the Bible, and so w- w- is it right or is it wrong? And there are, there's controversy within the church. How do you process through the gray areas? How do we decide if it's right or wrong? Now, I'm not saying that the, the Old Testament and the New Testament is not clear. Please. But when in the Bible does not get specific, our conscience should kick in. But what about those things that are that may not be wrong, they could be right, but they may not be best? Every generation will wrestle with certain things, with certain gray areas. So the question is: is, do you have the right within your Christian liberty to do whatever you want, no matter how it affects you or how it affects others? 2 Corinthians chapter 3.17 says this, where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom, right? And we say amen to that. Galatians 5.1 says, and for freedom, Christ has set us free. James says our lives are to be governed by the perfect law of liberty, a law of freedom. But 1 Corinthians 8.9, which we'll read today, says be careful, however, that the exercise of your freedom does not become a stumbling block for the weak. 1 Peter 2.16 says, Do not use your freedom or your liberty to willfully injure someone else. Now, I believe we're not under the law. We are free. But there are some guidelines that are really important. And I want to take these. This is from that that, uh, message. Um, John MacArthur talked about seven different guidelines or principle words to follow. And I want to uh, not only have the word, but then also to add a little question. And this will kind of help us. Mind you, these were from 1976. They're exactly right for us today. The first word is this, edification. Will doing this strength strengthen my walk with God? You put in the blank what this is, but will doing this strengthen my walk with God? Will it build me up? First Corinthians chapter 10, verse 23 says, All things are lawful, yes, but all things do not edify. And that's the truth. The second word is excess. Will this slow me down in the race? Hebrews 12 1 says, throw off everything that would hinder. Jesus said, if your eye offends you, gouge it out. If your hand offends you, cut it off. It may not be wrong, but if it will slow you down in the race, which 1 Corinthians 9.24 talks about us running a race, and if it's race day, you want to be as light as possible. You know that I like to ride bikes, I like to run, and when, when it comes to race day... You better believe it. I've got the least amount of clothes on that's appropriate (laughs) to run because I want to be fast. I don't want anything slowing me down. But when I'm training, there's people that will carry weights or put things on on them that can kind of weigh them down to make you sweat more. But when it comes to race day, which we're living in a race, we want to throw these things off. Number three, enslavement. Will this bring me into bondage? 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 12 says, we are not to be mastered by anything. So if you find yourself trapped with tobacco and nicotine, or social drinking and there's an addiction that's uh, laying right around the corner, or maybe you're trapped by the television, maybe you plan your week around it, or you, you have to watch your show or your sports or your athletics, anything that governs your life that is unhealthy we need to throw those things off. If it can bring you into, slave, uh, into bondage, we need to throw those things off. Number four, evangelism. Will it lead others to God? Colossians chapter 4, verse 5 says, Be wise with outsiders. The question is, what would others looking on say? Or what would others looking on your life think about you? Would they say, Oh, they say they're a Christian, but look what they're doing. It's an important question to get your mind around. Number 5, emulation. Is it Christ-like? 1 John chapter 2 verse 6 says whoever claims to live in him in Christ must walk as Jesus did. If that's a cha- if that's not challenging to you, I'm not sure what would be. But we are called to emulate Christ. The WWJD, what would Jesus do? What would Jesus watch? Where would Jesus go? That is what needs to be on our mind. Number 6, our example. This is different than evangelism. What will uh, will this help or hurt other believers, other Christians? Or will it cause someone to stumble? We're going to talk about that today. You realize that you're living in a glass bowl. Some people talk about when you're in ministry, your family, like so my family, because I'm a pastor, my kids are in a glass bowl, everyone's looking on. Well, the same is true for you. If you call yourself a believer, there are people watching you and other believers are watching you and your example they're evaluating you by the way that you live, whether you like it or not. And the last one is exaltation. And this is the kicker. Will it, will this, whatever it is, glorify God? Will it glorify God? And today, we're going to start a whole new section of 1 Corinthians chapter 8, and it goes really through chapter 8, 9, and 10. It's a section talking about liberty and rights. But the question is, will it exalt Jesus? 1 Corinthians 10, 31 says, Whatever you eat, whatever you drink, do it all for the glory of God. Will it bring glory to God? And all these principles... All seven of those are driving us in eight, nine, and ten of first Corinthians, and it all ends in first Corinthians chapter eleven verse one, where Paul says, "Follow my example as I follow Christ." By the way, this is my life verse it 's interesting that in in my Bible, uh, well several years ago, I went through a process of uh, saying um, uh, you know, what's my mission for life, for my life personally? And uh, I went through this whole whole big thing, and it was really, really a powerful time, really a growing time. And I wrote in my Bible, my mission is to model an obedient and passionate life in God. That's, if you don't want to know what I'm, I want to be, that's, that's what I want to be. And then I put First 1 Corinthians 11.1, 1, follow my example as I follow the example of Christ. And I did that way back in 2005. That was before I moved here. And uh, it was interesting. I also wrote in my Bible here, I choose to be, excuse me, a man of God. That was, uh, and then obedience creates an atmosphere for miracles. And then this is interesting. It really relates to the message. And uh, But it says, my weakness is not an excuse to sin. and uh, But those are, it's not, anyway. Uh, but, but it all kind of comes to a close in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 1. Now, as we dive into this passage today in 1 Corinthians chapter 8, I want to remind us that from chapter 7 to chapter 14 of 1 Corinthians, Paul is writing to the leaders of the church. The leaders have asked questions uh, regarding all kinds of things. Uh, for example, in uh, chapter 7, verse 1, Paul says concerning the things that you wrote about. And in chapter 7, he's talking about marriage and singleness. He's talking about sexuality there. In ver- chapter 8, 9, and 10, the topic, it's a hot topic, by the way, which we're going to get to in just a minute, is that meats were being offered to idols. And what do you do with meats offered to idols? Chapter 11 has questions about communion and worship. Chapters 12 and 14 are all about spiritual gifts and order within the church. And then chapter 13 of 1 Corinthians. What is chapter 13 of 1 Corinthians? The love chapter. And it's interesting that even today we get a little piece of that love. Paul introduces the idea of love. But I want to do something unique. We stand to honor God's word. And I want you to do that at this point. But I want to read... This particular passage, chapter 8, out of the Message Bible today... And I want you to follow along. We should have it uh, on the screen. And so put your copy of God's Word down just momentarily. We're going to get to it when we go through verse by verse. We'll get to the NIV and look at uh, different verses. But listen to what it says. Follow this. It's just creative. It's God's Word in a different way. Uh, And it really spoke to my heart, and I believe it will this morning to you. So 1 Corinthians chapter 8, here we go. It says the question keeps up coming up regarding meats that have been offered to an idol. Should you attend meals where such meals or such meat is served or not? Or sometimes, tend, we sometimes tend to think we know all we need to know to answer these kinds of questions. But sometimes our humble hearts can help us more than our proud minds. We never really know enough until we recognize that God alone knows it all. Some people say, quite rightly, that idols have no actual existence, that there's nothing to them, that there is no God other than our one God, that no matter how many of these so-called gods are named and worshipped, they still don't add up to anything but a tall story. They say again, uh, quite rightly, that there's only one God, the Father, that everything comes from Him, and that He wants us to live for Him. Also, they say that there is only one master, Jesus the Messiah, and that everything is for his sake, including us. Yes, it's true. In strategic logic, then nothing happened to the meat when it was offered to an idol. It's just like any other meat. I know that, and you know that. But knowing isn't everything. If it becomes everything, some people end up as know-it-alls who treat others as know-nothings. Real knowledge isn't that insensitive. Isn't that cool? We need to be sensitive to the fact that we're not all at the same level of understanding in this. Some of you have spent your entire lives eating meat or idle meat and are sure that there's something bad in the meat that then becomes something bad inside of you. An imagination and consciousness shaped under those conditions isn't going to change overnight. But fortunately, God doesn't grade us on our diet. We're neither commended when we, when we clean our plates, nor reprimanded when we just can't stomach it. But God does care when you, see, when you use your freedom carelessly in a way that leads a Christian still vulnerable to those old associations to be thrown off track. For instance, say you flaunt your freedom by going to a banquet thrown in, in honor of an idol. Where the main course is meat, sacrifice to idols. Isn't there great danger if someone's still struggling over this issue? Someone who looks up to you as knowledgeable and mature, sees you going to the banquet? The danger is that he will become terribly confused, maybe even to the point of getting mixed up himself in what his conscience tells him is wrong. Christ gave up his life for that person. Wouldn't you at least be willing to give up going to the dinner for him? Because you, because as you say, it doesn't really make any difference. But it does make a difference if you hurt your friend terribly, risking his eternal ruin. When you hurt your friend, you hurt Christ. A meal, a free meal here or there, isn't worth it at, at the cost of even one of these weak ones. So never go to these idle tainted meals if there is any chance it will trip you up or one of your brothers or sisters. Let's pray. Lord, your word is really rich. And Lord, your word is applicable back when this was written, 100 years ago, 38 years ago. It's relevant today for us right here, right now. Help us to get our mind around this passage. We ask it for your glory, for your honor. In Jesus' name, and everyone said, amen. Amen. You can be seated. Isn't that neat out of the Message Bible? Just gives it a little different perspective. I know some of you are tracking along, reading ahead, and I encourage you to do that. But let's just dive in and look at this. It says in 1 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 1, now reading from the NIV, it says this, Now about food sacrifice to idols. Where in the English, it took several words there. In the Greek, it's one word, meaning idol sacrifice. And you say, well, isn't this a little irrelevant to us today? We don't have idols. We don't sacrifice to idols. Well, let me just say, in the world that we live in, there are still today billions of people that participate in idol worship. In idol sacrifice, the Buddhists, Hindus, in, uh, in India, in Tibet, all over the world. But let's talk about what was happening in Corinth. In Corinth, we know that it was a Greek culture, it was in the Roman Empire. And the Romans and the Greeks, they had a number of gods. One commentator said this about the the environment that the Corinth church was in, that it was easier to find a god in Athens than to find a man. They were polytheistic to the extreme. They also believed in evil spirits. They were very superstitious. And there were gods for everything to say, there were hundreds of God gods, uh, and this is low g, of course, or little g, um, is not an exaggeration. Some even believe that there were thousands of gods. They created gods for everything, and now, in the context there, you get saved out of this pagan lifestyle. You get saved out of this influence, and you're saying, "I don't want anything to do with this." As a new believer, you're saying, "Boy." I want to separate myself from this. At the same time, there were mature believers in the church that are saying, what is an idol? An idol is nothing. Who cares? Live, eat, be merry. And it was a huge issue. In fact, most believed it was the most controversial issue of the time. What do you do with these meats that have been sacrificed to idols? So you say, well, what's going on here? Let me give you a little picture into what's happening. A family brings an animal to be sacrificed at a pagan temple. A third of the animal was burned, was gone. A third was given to the priests. And once the priests had their fill, there was leftovers. And then that meat was taken to a temple market on the backside of the temple It was often the freshest meat. It was also often sold at a huge discount. And then the other third of the animal was kept by the person bringing the sacrifice. They would take it home and have a party. It could be a birthday or anniversary or just uh, any reason to have a feast. And there was meat everywhere in Corinth. And again, it was very superstitious. Some people believed that these evil spirits were within the meat. And there were several issues for the believers at that time. Where would they buy their meat? And are they going to buy it at the lowest price at the meat market where the idols or the pagan temples? What if you were invited over to, uh, to a friend's house they purchased their meat at a temple market. And as a Christian, what do you do when you sit down at the table? Do you eat it or do you, or, or do you say, no, I'm not going to eat tonight? Idolatry was everywhere. You couldn't get away from it. It, it was like uh, chaos uh, in businesses and banquets. And so let me give you one example that, that could have happened in that culture. Let's say you were saved out of uh, that pagan lifestyle but your family members hadn't been. And now you're a Christian, but your sister is going to get married. And she's going to get married in a pagan temple. You say, do I go to the wedding? Do I even want to go? Do I want to step foot in this temple? Then the cook says, after the marriage ceremony, hey, the temple maid is here. There's filet mignon for everybody. And you're saying, look, I just got saved from this. What do, I, what do I do? Or if you're a mature believer and you're going, you're saying, look, will my weaker brother be looking on and see me go to the temple, see me participate in this, in this engagement? And the context was huge. The church was confused. So the, Paul brings some clarity to this situation. And I want you to know that you can change the activity if it's not idol worship or uh, meat sacrifice to idols, you can bring any situation, movies, music, alcohol, tobacco, abortion, and bring it as current today in the things that we face. And Paul, he offers some ideas that are really, really powerful. Now, before we dive in and look verse by verse, I want you to know in chapter 8, there were three Um, three things that appeared that the Corinthian believers had decided in their mind. And uh, let's look at them. In verse 1, they said that we all have knowledge. Verse 4, that an idol is nothing. And verse 8, that food does not bring us close to God. This is things that the leaders in the church had wrote to Paul saying, Look, this is what we believe. What do we do now? And Paul writes, he says, Look, I agree with those three things. He he agrees with that, but he says, I want to show you why you shouldn't do it. There's a higher principle, more than just logic. He agrees, but he says there's more to it, and that's where we see. He says, now about food sacrifice to idols, chapter 8, verse 1. He says, we know that we all possess knowledge. When he's talking about knowledge, we know that Paul was extremely educated. He was a man uh, that had an incredible mind. But he's receiving these letters from the Corinthian leaders that had some sarcasm. He's saying that they're saying, look, don't lecture us about this. We know what God's Word says. We know better. It's not a sin to eat meat sacrificed to an idol. They're They're saying, look, it's right. But Paul's saying, look, knowledge is not enough in this circumstance. And I would say this, that knowledge is not enough in our culture as well. With liberty, we often can lose a sense of righteousness or morality. It's a slippery slope. Knowledge puffs up. Look at what it says. But love builds up. What is this talking about? See, knowledge without love... You put the knowledge without love and you're conceited, overbearing, often judgmental or proud, just plain nasty. Knowledge without love. See, knowledge is important and Paul would understand that. He said, look, it's critical. It's a quality to behold. It's a quality of an apostle. It's To be filled with all knowledge, Paul says, is to be esteemed. Paul is high on knowledge. In fact, he even referenced Reference later in the Old Testament, Hosea says, my people are destroyed for a lack of knowledge. So there's no premium on ignorance here when we read this. But Paul is saying, look, Paul, um, knowledge is not sufficient. He continues, he says, knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. Have you ever met someone that had a whole lot of knowledge but didn't practice the love so much? I don't like people like that. I'm just going to be honest. If you have a ton of knowledge, you know things, and you are and you just kind of push that without considering the love part, um, I'd rather not even talk in most cases. What about the flip side? Have you ever met someone that's full of love? Just, oh, hey, but they have no knowledge? That's not very good either, is it? Right? We need both. In fact, it talks about this a little later in 1 Corinthians chapter 13, the love chapter. Turn with me just a page over probably in your Bible. Listen to what Paul says a little later to the Corinthian church. He says, look, if I speak in a tongue of men and of angels, he's saying, look, I've got this spiritual gift. I can speak in tongues. But if I don't have love, he says, I'm a resounding gong and it's a clanging cymbal. Useless. He says, "If I have the gift of prophecy and can fathom all mysteries and all knowledge, that word knowledge, he's saying, "Look, I can know all things, but if I have uh, and I can even have faith that can move mountains, but if I don't have love, I am nothing." Verse three, "If I give all I possess to the poor and surrender my body to the flames, which would be pretty incredible, right? But if I don't have love, I gain nothing. And so what I see here is that there's, we need both, knowledge and love working together. Let's look at verse 2, chapter 8, verse 2. It says, the man who thinks he knows something does not even know as he ought to know. Do you ever know anybody like that? Someone that is a know-it-all? The people that really have good knowledge, they understand that the more they know, the less they know. Isn't that the truth? That's what life is really about. Knowledge is is incomplete until it's fulfilled in love. And then verse 3, very interesting verse. But the man who loves God is known by God. What this is saying is that there's one true way to the knowledge of God, and it is to love God. You don't just know God. There are people at Harvard and the theology department there that that know about God, but until you know God, until you love God, you cannot really know Him fully. Let me try to explain this. If you if you were to say, "Well, um, I understand God's word, I love God's word, but I don't uh, think that church is important." Well. Um, that would be a contradiction to God because God talks about the church and the importance of the church and the importance of being together. And so you say, well, I I love God, but I don't love the church or I'm not going to participate in it. No, that is not possible. It'd be like you saying to me, well, I like you, Pastor Ben, but I can't stand your wife. Well, we're going to have... Am I right? That's exactly what it's like. And if that was the case, we're going to have a problem. And that's what this is saying here. Look, if until you love God and love the things that God loves, you're not going to know God fully. There's this love and knowledge. They are inextricably put together. I I was thinking about it this week, and uh, a a long time ago, I had this car, a little Honda Civic, and off the exhaust manifold, the exhaust that kind of came off, there was a crack in it, and it was really loud, and I'm like, oh, man, I got a quote. It was going to be like 500 bucks to replace, then I looked for a used one, couldn't really find one, and a friend, um, in fact, uh, Will Gutierrez, says to me, he says, hey, have you tried J.B. Weld? I'm like, I didn't even know what J.B. Weld was, and what it is, you buy this product. It's two tubes. One tube is like a, a glue, but then you add this hardener. You mix it together, and then it becomes like cement. And he says, "Hey, just you know, put it together, put it on the exhaust manifold, and it worked perfectly." Now the problem is, if you come over to my house on my driveway, I used it, you know, I'm like, did this, and it dripped through, and I got some JB Well, the whole a big spot like this that's raised up, and every time I'm blowing the snow. Boom, it hits it. And I think about that stupid J.B. Wells. But the idea there is that when you combine those two tubes together, it's powerful. And when you combine love and knowledge together, it is powerful. Now fast forward in this chapter, we're going to get, this is chapter, uh, we're going to take two weeks to look at the full context, but look at chapter 8, verses 8, or I'm sorry, verses 10 and 11. Listen to what it says. If anyone with a weak conscience sees you who have this knowledge, right, so you know eating of the idol's temple, won't won't he be emboldened to eat what has been sacrificed to idols? Verse 11, so this weak brother for whom Christ died is destroyed by your knowledge. So if you're doing it and you know in your mind that it's okay, but someone's looking on and they say, hey, this is where the rubber meets the road. Your knowledge is going to destroy the weaker brother. Verse 13, Paul concludes, Therefore, if what I eat causes my brother to fall into sin, I will never eat meat again so that I will not cause him to fall. Paul's saying, look, it's not worth it. My knowledge may be true, but if I don't couple that with love, in every circumstance, I'm going to be a resounding gong. The point is, is that there's a greater rule here. The issue is what will it do to those around you? Now, some hot topics. Bring that today to date. Social drinking. Does the Bible specifically say thou shall not drink? I'm not here to argue that. There are some that believe that it does, some that say no, it's a gray area. Regardless, it's a huge issue in our culture. And my guess is many, many of you have struggled with this issue in your context. Some say, ah, it's no one's business what I do in my own home, right? Well, I don't believe that's really true because you have to buy it somewhere, right? Or you're at a restaurant and you say, hey, it's my anniversary. It's okay to have a glass of wine. Well, that may be true. I'm not here to argue that. But what will others see in regards to that. Social drinking a huge issue. You can go down the line with movies, going to the theater, going to a rated R movie, uh, listening to a certain kind of music, um, playing certain kind of games, uh, what you allow your kids to do on Facebook or Instagram, whatever the case might be, whatever the hot topic is, what do you do? You say, well, Google's okay, or Instagram's okay, or Facebook's okay. There's nothing wrong with that. You've got the knowledge, but then you couple that with love how where does all these things flush out in our own lives and this is the point i think paul makes crystal clear if your right is stronger than your love for your brother or your sister you're puffed up you're conceited you've missed it and that's some hard things to say if your love or if your right is stronger than your love for your brother or sister you've missed it. Because look at what verse 12 says in that chapter. And we'll come back to this chapter next week uh, on Father's Day and we'll, we'll get a fuller context about our conscience and, and that'll be very good. But listen, when you sin against your brother in this way, someone sees you, look at the context. They see you participating and it causes a weaker, the weaker one, With uh, let's start over. When you see When uh, when you sin against your brother in this way and wound their weak conscience, listen to what it says. You sin against Christ. That's huge. And we're going to come back to this next week as well and look at this a little further. But if you cause your brother to stumble because of your liberty, you sin not only against that person, but you are sinned against God. Paul says, again, because of my love for God is so great, and because my love for people is so great, I won't even think about doing it. And you put the hot topic in your life into that whatever that it is. It is not what can I get away with. (laughs) What can I sneak around and do or it's okay to me. I don't want to do anything that will cause my brother to stumble. Because Paul's saying here, look, knowledge is not everything. You tracking with me? So let's go back to these guidelines. Seven words. Edification, excess, enslavement, evangelism, emulation, example, exaltation, you know I didn't come up with that list. I'm not that smart to get all these E words, right? (laughs) But you can filter your hot topic through these things. And I believe it will be very godly if you take your knowledge and couple it with love. Say, okay, is what I'm doing edifying? Is it excess? Can I do without it? Is it going to bring me into slavery, into bondage? Is it going to affect my witness with outsiders? How about my example with inside the church? Will it affect someone? Am I following Christ? Would Jesus do it? Would Jesus go there? Would Jesus watch that? And then ultimately, exaltation, does it bring glory to God? And we need to take our lives. We need to take the things that we want to do and put those through that filter. And I believe when we do, we will Make better choices Isn't that the truth? So I was thinking about it. OK, we need 2.2 million dollars, 2.5 million dollars. I was thinking about this. And if I had the opportunity to steal 100, or 1.5 million dollars somehow, would that be edifying the church? Yes, of course. <laughs> would it be excess? No, we need every penny of that, right? Would it cause evangelism to explode? Of course. No, because there's four other things <laughs> that is going to obviously cause, us, cause me to struggle there. There's one verse I want us to end on. I want you to turn everyone there to Matthew chapter 18. And then I'm going to ask Daniel if you could come. And we're going to just spend some time thinking about these words. In Matthew chapter 18, it's an interesting chapter. Jesus is talking about those that are uh, greatest in the kingdom of heaven. And, uh, and he's going along. And, but then he gets to verse 6 and he says, But if anyone causes one of these little ones to believe in me to sin, it would be better for him to have a large millstone hung around his neck and to be thrown into the depths of the sea. Now, this is not just talking about little kids. In the context here, it's talking about younger, weaker believers. And so you couple that verse with what Paul is saying in 1 Corinthians chapter 8. And Daniel, you can come. I appreciate it. If you cause any of these weaker Christians, those that have a weaker conscience, to believe in me, to sin by your example, it would be better to have a millstone around your neck and to be thrown into the sea. That's strong. And this morning, this chapter in particular is an incredible chapter to challenge us about the way that we live. And I'm not on some big crusade about anything, okay? But when it comes to your example. If your liberty in Christ is stronger than your love for others that may be looking on, I believe you've missed it. And God wants to deal with your heart this morning in regards to that. And I want you to close your eyes and bow your heads here for a moment. And I want you just to take the last week, maybe the last month, or maybe even the last year of your life, and put it into context into this 1 Corinthians chapter 8. And as we've begun to get our mind around this chapter, I want you to search your heart and say, God, am I living my life pleasing to you? Is my life pleasing to you? And as you ask that, curious to know if there are things that are coming up in your mind you're saying boy at work uh, there's areas that are not pleasing or I've taken my liberty too far with this area or that area Have I've not really considered my example And would you just be honest enough this morning to say you know pastor that's where I am today Would you just slip up your hand? I want to pray with you. I'm not going to call you out, but yeah. Yeah, lots of hands. Lots of hands. Yeah, thank you. See, God, in His Holy Spirit, He wants to lovingly encourage us to live above reproach, to live according to His Word. Yes, we are not under the law. We're under grace. We understand that. But our example, supreme. It's so important. And it's important in our own families. And what do our kids see? Or what do we allow? And I believe that the Holy Spirit wants to speak through some of our hearts and to give us a second chance. Or a third chance, or maybe a hundredth chance. I don't know. But This morning, if you need a second chance, I just want you to know God is here. thank you for your word for the power of your word that is so loving and so caring and so important in regards to this whole idea of my freedom versus my love, my knowledge versus love God I pray that you would challenge us as your people to live according to your statutes Lord put your hand upon our lives so our example not cause someone to stumble, that our example would not cause a weaker believer to fall into sin, go back to an old way of life. But Lord, help us to choose how to live according to your ways. I pray in Jesus' name and all God's people said, amen. Amen. In just a moment, the altar is going to be open. If you want to spend some time in prayer, we'll stay and we'll pray. But before we go, I want one other thing to be clear. This morning, if you have found yourself here today and you do not have a relationship with Jesus, there's no reason you should walk out of these doors without accepting Christ. It'd be the best decision you ever can make in your life. Isn't that the truth, everybody? See, God, He loves you so much that He sent His Son to die for you, to take away your sins. And when he took away our sins, he allowed, There's a, at that point, we could call on the name of Jesus. And the Bible says we'll be saved. We'll be saved from our sin. And it provides us the opportunity to choose to live forever in heaven or if we don't choose, we're actually choosing to spend an eternity away from God. This morning, my heart, people around you's heart is that not one person would perish. That's God's heart. Whether you're tall or short, skinny, or fat, whether you're young or old, woman or a man, it doesn't matter. God wants a relationship with you. And if you're here this morning, say man, I need that relationship. I need to be saved. Would you just slip up your hand right where you are? I want to pray with you. Is there anyone here this first service? Just looking through, saying, boy, that's where I am today. I need to get my life right with God. Anyone in the center section? This right section, my left, your, your right. Anyone at all? See, That's where I am today. I need a relationship with Jesus. All right. With your eyes on me here for a second. I want us to close and pray for our example. I want you to stand right where you are. And I want you just to lift your hands to the Lord here just for a moment. Just begin to call out to God, saying, God, use my testimony, use my life as an example use my experience, use my ways, show me, help me search my heart. God, I just pray that you would just minister, that you would move in this place, God. Lord, that there would just be a rush of grace, a rush of peace, but a rush of love and of knowledge. And God, that we would be making good choices on hot topics. God, that we would not exercise our liberty over our love for others. God, help our examples to be strong, to be godly. And where there are gray areas, help us to discern what's right for our family, what's right for our context. And God, I pray if we were to err, help us to err on the side of holiness, God. Oh, God, keep us strong in you. Keep our, your hand upon us, God. Keep us free from sin. And Lord, go before us, behind us, and around us for your glory, for your honor. We pray it all in Jesus' name. And all God's people said, amen and amen. Amen. We love you very much. God bless you as you go. The altars are open if you need prayer for anything or we can anoint you with oil. um, Please refrain to talk too much until you're out in the lobby.